0: welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. <laughs> Hello there alexa here and with me today is a new york-based performer teacher conductor and author who has presented globally on the subject of gender trans voice and inclusion he is the musical director for the new york's first transgender expansive singing ensemble transcend and will feature at vocology and practices event this july 2022 focusing on identity dr felix graham what a pleasure it is to welcome you to the singing teachers talk podcast how are things with you how's new york
1: Warm, but lovely. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And at the time of this, we're in June. So I'd like to wish you a very happy Pride Month. Are you going to be celebrating or have you celebrated already?
1: We did. So Sunday, uh, the third or fourth, whatever Sunday in uh, June is always Pride in New York. So Sunday was our Pride. And we actually celebrated by um, making history in uh, a weird way. So my group, uh, Transcend, which is a classical uh, transgender expansive classical vocal ensemble, right, uh, actually sang the Eucharist for Pride Sunday at Episcopal Church, St. John's in the village here. As far as anyone around us and my colleagues go, this is the first time that trans uh, singers a trans choir whatever has been involved in the liturgy in any capacity. So we decided that we were celebrating pride by changing things. So I'm super excited about that and so proud of my babies. Oh, I'm God! I'm so proud of them. They did so well and it was it was a, a stressful thing, but they came through and did a beautiful job and it was a great pride. So that was how my pride month went.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Well, congratulations for that. That sounds pretty awesome. For those who haven't been introduced to your work before, can you share a bit about your story with us and how that's led you to work in the area that you work in and the projects that it's led to?
1: Sure, um, so it goes back a little bit, which is to say that um, I I have always had gender issues, right? Um, and full disclosure in this, I am an intersex person, but that was not discovered until after I started transition. So I, when I talk about myself, I sometimes use the word transsexual to describe, because I think that's probably a closer word to describe me than transgender, however, uh, from my personal point of view, I don't really consider myself a quote unquote transgender person. I consider myself someone who is correcting changes that were made at my birth that I didn't have option in, if that makes sense. So as a result of that, I had voice issues for most of my singing life, I started as a musician quite young. Um, by the time I was like twelve or thirteen, I was performing professionally in different environments, both as a singer and a and a pianist. Right, but um, I always had a difficult voice, which is to say, it didn't work in the ways that "quote unquote" girl voices were supposed to work. Because, turns out, it wasn't a girl voice, um, and even uh, you know, post puberty. I continued to have issues because the my laryngeal mutation was more like a male laryngeal size, uh, vocal fold thickness, and so forth than it was a typical AFAB instrument, right? So to give an example of how that plays out, I couldn't even access an upper extension of any sort above about F or G until I was about 23 or 24. I mean, uh, F five, a G five, right. Rather than four. Um, but it took that long for my larynx to settle, to calcify enough that I could even, uh, withstand the sort of air pressure that was necessary to access that part of the voice. Um, but because I couldn't access a great deal of my voice because of those complications and because at about the age of 18 or 19, I started to actually, um, Uh, virilize. My voice started to drop a little bit. I started to, essentially, body was more responsive to testosterone than an AFAB body is supposed to be, right? And so, literally, I was starting to go through a second puberty. This being the 90s, of course, uh, doctors kind of freaked out and uh, put me on estrogen to try to control that, um, which created its own set of problems. So, I had this interesting voice. It was quite large, but I couldn't access a great deal of it because uh, the it was, it was a male larynx, male vocal folds in still a female neck and a female body with all of the issues that estrogen brings, mm-hmm. which is pliability to the muscles and so forth. So losing the stability that would have allowed me to access my full voice. So because I couldn't access my full voice, um, essentially I got pushed up, 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 up. Up into soprano rep in a voice that was in no way, shape, or form a soprano voice. Um, and you know, in my in my early career, where I was, and by early I mean in terms of as an adult, right? 23, 24, 25, 26, right, I was hearing a lot of uh well, you're not just, you're just not doing it right. When I would say, this is not comfortable. This doesn't feel good. I don't, I I can't whatever. Right. And it was really, the response was well-meaning, but nevertheless, Oh, you just need to support more. Oh, you need to do whatever. And in reality, no, I needed to sing in a completely different way altogether. Um, this sort of came to a head when I was maybe 26, 27. Um, I had a recording recording, gig thing that was supposed to do had some really bad allergies. I was already feeling like super anxious. And, um, essentially I developed a voice disorder, functional voice disorder, muscle muscle tension, dysphonia. Right. Um, Practically overnight, simply because there was there was allergies, there was there was anxiety, there was um, depression, and a lot of goop in my throat. And trying to sing big high rep with all of those things is really a recipe for functional disaster, right? So it really derailed my career for quite some time. And I got I started to when I started to work with a teacher who worked with voice disorders and so forth. Um, Dr. Jean Gaffey-Fenn, who is really my mentor and who's the reason I have a career and so forth in this, right, who also um, teaches at Columbia, right, at Teachers College, right, we started to work through stuff and I realized, oh, hey, this is a thing that I have to fix myself, this is not something people can fix for me, there was too much emotion, too much, um, too much trauma, too much of a lot of things going on. Um, for someone outside with no knowledge of my head to really understand what was going on. And so I really got interested in vocal pedagogy in my my mid 20s, mid early 20s, right, because Uh, it was necessary, right? Now, obviously, Dr. Goffey helped me a great deal and gave me a lot of tools and so forth. But, you know, you get five, six, seven years into this and the tension hasn't fully resolved. The brain starts to ask some questions like, why, why, what, what, what is this, right? And um, it took, it took, many years more, because let let it never be said, I'm not, you know, stubborn or slow to uh, get cues from the universe. Um, But it took me a little while to get to a point where I was like, okay, this is not working. I am not working. I've got, all, you know, at that point, I had gotten my master's degree in, in music and vocal pedagogy from Columbia, right? And I was teaching and doing other, you know, doing the work you do and research and stuff. And I'm like, why has this not resolved? And as I started to explore gender stuff finally again, um, I, had, I had really started to uh, explore my gender in, when I was 18, 19, 20, but the issues with my health and stuff and then moving to New York and wanting to be a performer and being told, hey, you can't look like a little butch you know, if you want to work. I had sort of stuffed everything under the rug and tried to make it work, and it didn't work because it wasn't authentic, right? And because it wasn't authentic, it started. It really built on the depression and the anxiety and so forth. So I got to be about thirty-five or so, and was like, "Oh no, this is. I'm not spending the rest of my life like this." Um, so as I started to reexplore gender stuff, my voice started to actually reduce anxiety, you know, the the tension, all of the issues that I had been dealing with for the past 10 years really started to just go away on their own. I wasn't doing anything different. I had, I wasn't trying new exercises. The only thing that had changed was my internal landscape, right? And uh, at that point, I, uh, once I started my doctorate, um, I was actually finally taken off estrogen because it was more or less killing me. And again, of course, as soon as I was taken off, my voice started to drop again and all the sort of things came to a head and realized, holy cow, I'm not a cis person in a cis body. This is, this is an intersex body. And a great deal of the problems that I've been having with my voice were because I was being taught with all good faith, like I was an AFAB singer and I really wasn't. Right. And once I started to sing a little bit more like a tenor, although once I really went into uh, a transition, tenor was not where we stopped. Um, but uh, once I started to sort of work from a more IMAB or masculine, you know, uh, point of view for my voice with a lower laryngeal position, stabilizing the larynx, um, stretching instead of popping, things like that as I go up, the voice stabilized Infinitely more, and it really made me start to think how many of the problems that I'm teaching, that I'm working on, that I'm treating as mechanical problems, were not actually mechanical problems. Because as I look back, I think how different my life would have been if, at any point of mumblety mumblety years of training, <laughs> um, right, somebody had just looked at me and said, "Do you like your voice?" if someone had just looked and said, do you like your voice? You don't seem to like your voice. Why is that? Like my entire internal landscape would have been changed. My, my technique, my everything. And I started to think, you know, that, okay, there are many ways to teach and none of them are invalid because there are many ways to sing and there are many singers, but there does need to be someone out here who is looking at the singer's Truly, and and this is not to say that other people don't, but as something more than a floating voice, that we're starting with the person instead of the sound that we're starting with. um, You know, there was a there was a uh, vocal pedagogy person in the nineteen forties who's in my direct uh, lineage, uh, my pedagogical lineage um, that uh, I could get into this. We did one of my most favorite classes, one of my uh, anthropology classes for my doctorate. We did a pedagogical uh, like family tree. So it was really fun to go back that and get to see where all of my vocal pedagogy lineage came from. But in the 40s, she was a a woman who had studied with um, Tori Bastianini, right, the uh, bass, right? And um, she, she was Russian and had moved to the United States with World War II. And she was struggling with her performance because there were health issues. And when she realized that she could no longer perform, she wanted to start teaching in a way that helped other people who had anxiety who had prob- physical problems with the voice and she was really i would say like one of the one of the primary people who started to i mean you know in the in in the tradition of garcia and so forth to look at voice as not necessarily a, a abstract art but as a science as a sport right and she'd always she, one of the things that she wrote in or said in an interview was you know people train the voice or the sound but the voice is the consequence right? The voice is the consequence of the person. How can I train a consequence? I need to train the person. Right. And that was something that really stuck with me, uh, with me in this is uh, we need to train the person. And sometimes that starts with things other than doing singing exercises over and over again. Sometimes that starts with literally just talking about what your voice means to you, how you use your voice, how you think about your voice. And it, I find, you know, that, that the more we do that, the more, um, the more efficacious, the, mechanical work we do is, right? It doesn't take a lot to adjust the voice. These are small muscles. It just takes the right thing to adjust it. And I know that was a very long answer. So I hope that that covered a, a lot of things and covered the question there.
0: No, I loved it. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, and as as vocal coaches, if we have this marketing strategy, don't we? We know who we want to come through the door, our, our typical, you know, Um, avatar, if you like. But I think it's our intention, or or hopefully it's our intention to be inclusive within the voice studio. So to ensure that singers are welcomed into this warm, safe environment where they can develop and express and become authentic. What does it mean to be inclusive? And what can we be doing to ensure that our studios are?
1: So, I have lots of feelings about this one too. <laughs> so you were just asking all the questions. I think the first thing that we have to always remember is that inclusive is not a noun. It is a in this context it is a verb. It is something that has to be practiced consistently and it starts with transparency. Right. If we have a student, a client who comes into our studio and this is not something that we have a lot of experience in, we need to be up front and say, hey, I haven't done a lot of work with this. But if you'll bear with me, we'll learn as we go, because, you know, I'm I'm committed to trying to find the most efficacious ways to help you. So if you're willing to be patient with me, we'll work through this. Right. That's thing, number one. And that's really hard to do because the sort of master teacher model that the voice studio has been sort of traditionally modeled on has always sort of, uh, you know, sort of shaped the idea of vocal pedagogy as this sort of copyrighted you know sort of secret this is my secret method right that has been passed down right and and to admit that we don't know everything often feels like we're undermining our own expertise or that it that people will look at us and think that we're not good at what we do and in reality quite often it's the opposite people have more respect and more willingness to be patient with us when we do acknowledge our deficits right
0: And it it totally takes away the pressure on that one person to know everything as well um actually just to say the words i don't actually know the answer to that but i'll i'll get back to you and as you say we'll work it out together my goodness does that take the pressure off uh, of the coach in that scenario
1: oh yes and and i often even with my my clients i'll be like we're going to try something. I don't know if it's going to work. Here's why I want to try it. Here's sort of the theory about it. But can we see what happens if we do this? If it doesn't work, then we try something else. If it does work, we go from there. But to, if, I, if I'm honest and transparent up front, then there is going to be extended to me more goodwill than if I present myself as the infallible expert who can never do wrong, Right. Mm -hmm. So, the second thing that I think of as making an inclusive studio is, again, moving away from that master uh, student model and into the idea of collaborative learning, right? That the person who is standing before you is the expert of their own voice. They live in it. Yes, I can tell oftentimes when things are going wrong because I can hear it. I can see cues, but it is also possible for someone to make a sound that is perfectly fine and yet not be perfectly fine internally at all. And you miss that because they're not giving you feedback. So I I think one of the big keys for feeling welcome in a, in a studio is feeling like my own insight about my voice, my own experience is being acknowledged and being valued and is being sought out. Mm -hmm. Right. Then the, I think third thing in this is that, like I said, inclusivity is a ongoing process, right? It's, it's about constantly thinking about our own practice, the words that we use, the expectations that we have, the, the, um, I don't know, the, the things that we, the stereotypes that we sort of have for voices, because think about it, we, you know, what is soprano, alto, tenor, base but a set of essentially stereotypes. It's a loose set of, okay, within this label, you will have such and such probably a range, such and such tessitura, you will like so certain vowels or whatever, but think about how much variation, right? Uh, you know, um... Birgit Nilsson is not the same soprano as Kathleen Battle or whatever, right? Pick your pick, whatever generation of singers you want, but yet we both put the, the soprano label on them, right? And if we think about how unhelpful that is to describe the difference between those two sopranos, think about that. Then when we're assigning terms to voices with gender and so forth, right? They're thinking about our language and the expectations and the beliefs that we have is an ongoing ongoing process, right? Because there's always going to be voices that defy that. And in this case, in my voice, you know, the conventional wisdom was, well, it's just not worked out enough. It's just not, you know, there's just not enough support. There's just not enough, whatever. And in reality, none of those things were actually true.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And so, you know, and I don't, I don't have, I don't have, you know, criticisms from my voice teachers. They did, they did, quite well with what they had and, you know, did the best that they could. Um, but again, if the voice is not responding to the typical things, I think we need to be open and talk about that and say, hey, this is what I'm normally expecting, but this is what's happening, right? So we need to figure out why that is happening. So constantly adjusting our expectations, our thoughts, and not when a student walks or client walks through the door not assuming that you know everything about that voice and that per- person just based on their external presentation mm-hmm. right there's there is a lot most humans i would say have a lot of goodwill for people who are good faith trying does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if you are constantly working on your own pedagogy, if you're constantly being authentic and transparent and acknowledging, oh, hey, maybe the word that I used, there wasn't a great word for this. If that was hurtful, I'm sorry, but let's figure out how we can talk about this in a way that's going to make you feel more comfortable, but that that communicates the information that you need to know. I think people give you a lot of room and a lot of grace, mm-hmm. right? I think we get really hung up on this idea of wanting to do it right with a capital D i r do it right and in reality there is no perfect or foolproof way to do it right every time right mm-hmm. and so if i think if we put less and less emphasis on doing it right and more emphasis on on social, on the social interaction that we're doing and observing the person that we're with and talking to them and getting their input and so forth, that we're going to fail a lot less, right? If we, you know, if you say something wrong or you, you choose the wrong words and you see that it has an impact, all that needs to be said is, oh, I'm, that seems like that was hurtful. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be hurtful. How can we talk about this in a way that, that is more accommodating for how you see your voice, or how you understand that experience. That's all that needs to be said and done. It doesn't need to be a giant, you know, mea culpa, song and dance. Quite a lot, often, like when we're talking about trans queer folk, the the song and dance of, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that, whatever, is more uncomfortable than the original offense, Mm. right? So I think maybe putting ourselves in other people's shoes, because again, trans people are just people, Right. It's not you know, trans queer folk, whatever, They're just people too. Right. So if you can empathetically put yourself in someone else's shoes, you can make a lot of progress towards being inclusive and being welcome simply because you are being empathetic.
0: Terminology can be can be a sensitive thing for people to talk about. And I know as as a cisgendered woman, I am I'm quite terrified of of getting it wrong. And then it's all about me. Like I wanna know what I need to do to make it about the person that's in front of me. So I wondered whether you could shine some light and just tell us what might be the appropriate terminology for us to be using.
1: The short answer is there is no one appropriate terminology. The long answer is a little bit more complicated. And the the spiel I always give about this is that I can't tell anybody what the right language is to use in every situation because there is no right language for every situation, right? One of the things to keep in mind is that our, our that trans queer awareness and existence in the public sphere is quite young in comparison to most social movements, right? The advent of technology as we kind of experience it now has made issues global that in past generations would have taken decades, if not millennia for that change to happen, right? So we're dealing with a situation that is advancing faster perhaps than any social movement has in the history of human movement, right? So the language of transition, the language about queerness and so forth is consistently shifting because there there simply hasn't been time, right? So for instance, what was okay to say and what was in fact inclusive and, you know, welcoming to say 10 years ago is really inappropriate now because our understanding has changed because the vocabulary has developed, right? Mm -hmm. And even even more to the point, right, the appropriate vocabulary changes from circle to circle, right? So, Generally speaking, you know, when you have a group of trans folk in a community, right, they're going to determine what their appropriate language is and they're going to use it. But unfortunately, there's often because humans are humans and trans queer folk are just as human as any other human. Right. There is this assumption that, oh, because we put this together. So everybody must be like us. So this is the appropriate language. And in reality, if you step two steps to the left, there is someone who is going to be really offended by that or someone who's going to be hurt by that because those words were used to hurt them before, right? Mm. So there is no singular language. What there is is singular people.
0: Mm.
1: Does that make sense at all? Mm.
0: Yeah, totally taking the person as as arrives in your studio. Um, and it brings me on to maybe something that we might find helpful is to put into maybe an intake form that inclusive language of, what are your preferred pronouns or a space for them to be able to introduce themselves to you um in a way that feels open and that they can show their individual authenticity to you straight sure. away
1: and i just you know i ask uh you know just the first thing is hey, hey you know when a new client comes in hi i'm dr felix uh, i go by he him may i ask uh may I ask your pronouns You know, it's just, it's not, it's, it doesn't even have to be a big thing.
0: Mm. And
1: honestly, right. A lot of cases, like there's been this huge fixation on pronouns and so forth. And that's really sort of the least of most people's concerns. I mean, yes, it's important. And yes, we want to, because I mean, think about if somebody just called you he all day, you'd get annoyed, right? But what is more important is that we're treating individuals with respect and consideration, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we're doing that, then the other things flow naturally from that. If we respect someone's sense of self and autonomy, we listen to them when they tell us about ourselves. If we respect their knowledge of their self, we listen to them when they're telling us something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel good. Right. And for my own experience, and obviously mileage is going to vary here and, I will acknowledge upfront that because I am out, I am out as a trans person, right? I may have a lot more leeway in talking about things than maybe other folks. You know, cis folk teachers might have simply because I'm putting myself out on, on display. But it has generally been my experience that if I explain why I'm using the labels that we're using or why I'm using, I will say to somebody, you know, so oftentimes people use the word soprano to mean such, such, and such. In this case, we're going to use it as a non gendered thing simply because it's going to tell us something. But more to the point, I tend to use high voice or whatever. But if soprano works for you then we can use that word. It's what you feel comfortable. You know, a label is just a label. And if it doesn't convey the information that we're wanting it to convey, it's not a useful label. So if soprano works for somebody, you know, just using that as an example, then that's a useful la- label. If it doesn't, then it's not, right? It's it's very much contextual. Mm-hmm. I, I give an example of this. So I don't use the word falsetto, right? For a lot of reasons. The first of which is that historically speaking, the word has some very negative connotations. In modern parlance, it's more or less like calling someone a trap, right? There, There's undertones to it that suggest deceit, that suggest not, not realness, and so forth. And I know a lot of people are like, well, you know, language has changed. It's not like, that. really, really? Has it really changed that much? Really? You know, the, the point is, is that it's it's one, it is gendered, but two, it does have this undertone that it is not real, that that's not your real voice right? So I use the term flipped voice because everybody has that and everybody knows what a flip feels like, right? So in terms of label being much more useful, flipped voice tends to be much more useful for clients who've never used vocabulary before singing vocabulary before. Sometimes I might use the word falsetto to indicate, okay, this is what you, what traditionally might have been called a falsetto. I call it such and such. That's why but I only use it when, when that label is going to be more helpful to me than the other labels that I'm using. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So language is, is fluctuating. It is intersectional. It is, it is contextual right there. It's really more a matter of communication. Are you communicating with your client? Are you explaining why you're using the terms you're using are you listening to them if they tell you something is not comfortable whatever that's that's really the core of language is not that there is one prescribed language to use but that it your language flows from your relationship with the person who is in front of you
0: mm, mm, absolutely and then with with training um, trans voices, uh, you recently did um, a really great talk for Vocology and Practices Ed Um and you included this discussion on what transition looks like with unmodified hybrid and modified stages. So can you just describe us a, a little bit about what that means for each of those stages and what we're seeing?
1: Sure. And I actually just recently published a chapter that's going to be coming out, a book on trans feminine voice training, for uh, medical professionals. I wrote a chapter on this, on singing for a trans-fem voice. So this is sort of where that framework got developed. I look at, at trans voices, whether it's trans-masculine or trans-feminine voices, like you said, in those three categories. So our our unchanged voice, for, right, is literally just someone who has no desire to re-gender their voice. Their voice is what their voice is. And there there's no desire to put it into some other place. Does that make sense? For for some trans folk, oftentimes for trans folk who are a little older, their voice is a is an artifact of who they are. It is the it is the sum total of their experiences as a human. And for them, leaving that behind feels like leaving authenticity behind. Right. Now that is not to say that the unchanged voice or you know has no considerations because it does. If you are on HRT, there are going to be adjustments that you have to make period. And that's regardless of whether you're using testosterone or estrogen. So HRT is just hormone replacement therapy. And that's generally how people refer to the process of taking hormones uh, in a medical transition, right? Mm -hmm. So, so any kind of HRT that switches your body from what it would normally produce based on your initial puberty, right, is going to have some adjustments that need to be made, right? So the big thing I talk about a lot, right, is T makes muscles stiff, um, thick, less pliable. So they're less, they're less stretchy. You have to do more work, but they're also less prone to injury, Right. Estrogen makes muscles, connective tissue more pliable, more stretchy. So the stretch is there. It's easier to do um, registration shifts and so forth. But it's also going to be much more prone to mechanical injury. It's going to be much more sensitive to subglottal pressure, things like that. So adjustments have to be made, even if the tonal quality and color is not being shifted. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-mm. For a second there, when you said T, I actually thought you meant tea. <laughs> As in like you're speaking to an English person, that's where my brain goes to. <laughs> Testosterone Alexa, not PG tips. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: I don't know. There, there might be a T somewhere, who knows?
0: <laughs> um, yeah, that makes so- sense.
1: So the, high, um, the hybrid, well, actually, let me go to the other end of the spectrum, completely, you know, completely transitioned or changed voice, right, would be where someone has completely shifted, not just their speaking pitch, but the resonance profile, the, the color, their articulation choices and so forth, right? So for a trans femme person that might be training what we might think of as like a countertenor uh, or what people used to call a falsettist, right? Um, Nowadays, a lot of times people talk about it as alto or soprano, but again, that gets into the weirdness of gender words because male alto and male soprano are let me put it this way. If you have to specify a gender in front of a word to indicate that it is not the usual, then that word is gendered, right? So if we have to say male alto to explain that this is a a testosterone dominant voice singing in an alto range, then we know that word is gendered, right? There's a billion and one ways to talk about it. It's fine. Um, However, however your client feels best about it right Mm -hmm. nevertheless the point like for trans feminine person a completely shifted voice would involve completely shifting their their median speaking pitch their resonance profile and the the pitch their really everything the registration and so forth to shift into sort of that upper octave instead of the lower octave for a trans masculine person a full transition is going to Generally speaking, unless you are just the sort of rare, rare bird that comes with a pretty uh, androgynous voice to begin with, right, you're probably going to require some kind of hormone therapy to drop the voice into a pitch that is masculine. Now, that also, though, however, is going to uh, require some shifts in resonance strategies, some shifts in things like, so we associate glottal attacks more with masculine voice. We associate, um, voiced consonants with masculine voice, but unvoiced consonants with fem voice, laryngeal positioning and so forth. So it's never just hormones. It is hormones plus training and shifting mm-hmm. hybrid is somewhere in the middle. They may not choose to necessarily completely change their natal voice. Right. But they may want to make some shifts. So for instance, um, some trans femme folk find it difficult if they have a heavier voice to maintain sitting in a higher tessitura, but they do want to make some changes in terms of the resonance, making it a little brighter, um, maybe lifting the laryngeal position a little bit, unvoicing the consonants a little bit. So it's sort of a pick and choose buffet of what you want, right? Depends on what your goals are. But one of the things that I really want to put into here, into this, just to think about is that no transition vocal or otherwise ends in the same place that it started. Because as we explore ourselves, as we become more confident with who we are, our ideas of what we can be expand and we become more comfortable. For instance, somebody who is very concerned about passing at the beginning of of their transition may be very, very dead set on I need to make my voice do this, this, and this so that I feel comfortable in my gendered identity, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Whereas
1: once they're once they've been on HRT for a while, they're passing more consistently, they may feel more freedom in what their voice is like because it turns out there is a wide spectrum of what voice sounds like, even in cisgendered individuals, right? Mm. So the, the catch in all of this is that it needs to be flexible. And that's what I use the categories for literally is what are your expectations? Are you wanting to simply keep the voice that you have and make the adjustments that are necessary based on your new physiology? Do you want to try to make some changes, but that you want to keep the core of your voice, or are you interested in completely shifting your voice to match your gender identity? Mm. Right. And, and again, like I said, it could, at the beginning of the transition, someone may want one thing and have moved to another category by the end, but the categories are just sort of loose examples and ways that I can talk to clients about what vocal transition is like, because quite often right there's not a lot of good information out there there's not a lot of research still and the information that often gets passed through the community can be very folk oriented which is to say not necessarily always rooted in science or research and may be in some cases completely unobtainable right this happens a lot with with my younger clients who've seen a lot of you know videos tiktok youtube whatever of people sharing their beautiful perfect transition timeline where in three months they went from blah 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 to blah 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 right And that's not how that works. Humans are messier than that. And a lot of it is dependent on your genetic background, on your age, on just so many other things. So oftentimes when people come in, they have, oh, this is how this is going to work. And this is what I want. Not really realizing that maybe that's not what their genetic background supports, right? Mm -hmm. So talking about it in these categories allows people to sort of understand what the various options are. I also usually explain, okay, this, you know, a hybrid sound is going to be much easier to obtain immediately or in short order, but a fully transitioned voice for, even for someone, a transmasculine person on testosterone, that may take anywhere from three to five years to fully settle, be usable in professional contexts and so forth. Right. So it's really just a, a, a a constructive way or a framework to help people understand what their options are, what those timelines look like, and the amount of work that's going to need to be put in to do that.
0: Mm. And and thinking about the um, the use of testosterone and and how do you go about guiding your transmasculine um, singers whilst they're using testosterone gels or waiting for that settlement what are your top kind of considerations and approaches there?
1: Well, I wrote an article about it. <laughs> um, actually just recently pu- published in the voice and speech review um, called to T or not to um, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm a, big fan of dad jokes. Um, th- that is, that is, that is the core of my work actually. Um, so oftentimes actually we'll start by just sharing that with them to read through because it's a lot of the information that they need to know. But in general, the, the points are, is the primary point is, is we don't have a lot of hard information. Mm-hmm. And anybody who tells you this is the guaranteed outcome you're going to have if you do this, is, is lying, or at least is misinformed, right? And should be that kind of advice should be avoided because there is so much that is dependent on your physiological size, your, your androgen receptors, Okay, so not every body has the same amount of receptors for, you know, that are sensitive to specific sex hormones. Right. So, for instance, um, if you're a cis female with PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, you may actually have more androgen receptors or at least more sensitivity to androgens than someone who does not have PCOS. Right. So even in the cis population, there is a wide variant in people's sensitivity to hormones. Right. Mm. There's also. Can, we
0: just, can I just ask about androgens? Is that the hormone that makes the voice a little deeper, a little um, thicker? Yes.
1: Yeah, so androgens and estrogens. Androgens are just the the full array of male male focused um, uh, hormones. Where estrogens are the full range of female. Right? right. The the female side is, I think, a little bit more complex than than the male side. For instance, a a transmasculine person is generally only ever going to just take T, whereas a uh, transfeminine person may take estrogen blockers, I'm sorry, uh, testosterone blockers, as well as supplemental estrogen and other things. There's like three or four different categories uh, that may be required for someone to fully medically transition as a trans femme person. Mm-hmm. But again, that varies so much from individual to individual that generally the only way to figure out what you're going to be is to wait and see what you're going to be. Now, (laughs) that said, right, there are some, there are some cues, right? The first off is looking at your immediate family. What kind of voice does your, dad or your mom have what kind of voice do you, does your siblings have right look at that sort of in the aggregate what what is the trend and that is going to inform some of what y- you might be likely to experience now that's not like dead set because you can always have that one low base in the family of high tenors right simply because roll of the genetic dice but it's more likely than not that you're going to match something similar in your family then we have to look at your physiological size if you are a very small person, right? Your neck is small. Your laryngeal structure is small. There is a limit to what your voice can simply do because the intrinsic musculature, not just the vocal folds, but the full musculature, the CT muscles, etc everything that controls the function of the folds, the open closure, thinning out, all of those things is also delimited by the size of the structure. And more to that point, it still has to sit in the neck that you've got. And musculature in the neck is also responsible for how well we can stabilize our larynx. So you may be able to get vocal folds that are thick enough that you could sing baritone, for instance, if you were in an AMAB body, but if the rest of the, of the body is is slight enough or small enough that you might not be able to sustain that you might not be able to fully access that part of your voice simply because the mechanism is not capable of stabilizing the larynx enough right so we look at your physical attributes then there are other physical things that also affect how well you um how well you essentially absorb hormones, right? So for instance, uh, gel, we we talk about gel as sort of like the ideal thing for vocal transition because it mimics the natural production of a, a mad person's testosterone production. So it's heavier in the morning, lighter at night, which allows you to sleep and so forth. And it's more consistent because you're doing it daily, right? But some people do not absorb gel at all. Some people have over-absorbed, right? Um, some of it depends in Just weirdly enough, body weight, you need a certain amount of body fat on your body to be able to absorb um, topical hormones, right? So if you have a very low body weight, um, the gel might not even work for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at all of your individual contacts. And again, in this case, I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. I'm a (laughs) doctor of books, not blood, you know, so I'm not I can't sit here and tell you this is absolutely what's going to happen. But I can give you some information about what this might be like and how to make these judgments for yourself, because at the end of the day, the whether or not. And this is this is actually a little pet peeve that I want to just put out here. I really, really, really wish that voice teachers would stop with the horror stories of, oh, you shouldn't you, you'll lose your voice. You won't be able to. Excuse you. <laughs> right. Because, A, even if that were true and it's not actually really true. What the, what the research is starting to show us is that most of the post transition problems that trans voices have is due to lack of the appropriate technique for the new instrument um, Mm -hmm. embodied tension and can be resolved in many cases with voice therapy and the correct kind of habituation. Right. Mm -hmm. So first on first thing is that we don't know that that's true. Right. The second is that's not your decision to make. One of the reasons it took me so long to transition and really took a huge toll on my mental health was because of that kind of fear mongering of, oh, you won't, you, you, you just, you won't be able to sing. You won't be able to perform like, excuse you really? Um, Because look at me now, right? Here we are. Um, But the thing is, is there is more to whether or not you transition than simply whether or not you can sing afterwards. Now Mm -hmm. I know that sounds heretical, right? Everybody though, can, everybody can retrain, right? You can regain some of your voice, whether or not you have as much as you had before, more, whatever. That's a little bit dependent on how much you work at it. That's dependent on a whole bunch of different factors. But what the research is really starting to show these days is that the majority of the blocks are not actual, actually physiological. They're functional and functional issues can be addressed if you have the patience and time and training to do that. But there are other factors that have to be considered. And one of them is your mental health mm. right if being in the body that you're in if be if that is causing you so much distress and so much dysmorphia and so dysphoria right you're not going to be singing well to begin with right your quality of life is going to be such that what you might lose by going on hrt is so minuscule uh, compared to what you might gain Mm -hmm. Right. There are quality of life issues that have to be, you know, figured out. And that is something that only a person, an individual can decide for themselves. I can give them the information as I do. I can explain to them what risks there are, which I do. I can explain to them what potential benefits there are. I explain to them what the frustration levels can be like, and that's intense for two or three years. But, you know, go think back to puberty. Most, uh, you know, uh, cis boys, their voices are not stable like two years after puberty. Usually most male voices don't stabilize until the early 20s, -hmm. right? There's a period of seven, eight, maybe more years before that voice is fully situated and functional, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a little, it's a little, disingenuous to say, well, you know, your voice won't stabilize for, you know, a year or two. So that's, that's a big risk. You shouldn't do that. I mean, that's what everybody went through at puberty, Mm. right? So the decision has to be the individuals and the individuals alone. I can inform I can give you the different scenarios. I can tell you how, you know, what the frustration might be like, but at the end of the day, I cannot make that judge and giving, giving emotionally laden responses to that is really doing your clients a disservice because this is already a, nobody, nobody really does this lightly. Does that make sense? There's Mm -hmm. a lot that goes into it. When you have an adult in your studio who is considering transition, that is not a small thing that they just wandered into on the park, you know, on a sunny day and thought, hmm, I'll take hormones, right? There was already a huge weighing of the balance. You know, what are the pros? What are the cons? Am I going to get more out of this than what it's taking from me? Right? Mm -hmm. So, the job should really just be neutral information and allow the person to make their own choice with the knowledge that you will help them and support them regardless of what choice they decide to make.
0: Mm-hmm. And with, with working with both trans and trans feminine voices, obviously everybody is going to be showing different uh, things and their journey is very individual. Speaking kind of technique wise, is there anything that you're like, this tends to happen when we're working trans masculine, transfeminine? Yeah.
1: There's 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 several patterns. And again, we always want to remember that these are patterns, not laws, right? There are people mm-hmm. who can differ, etc., but there are patterns. Um, the the first and primary thing to keep in mind is that when you went through puberty the first time, Your brain was in what I refer to as schema acquisition mode. It knows that when you go through this experience, things are changing and it is having to adjust its function as those changes things, as those things change, right? That's why teenagers get clumsy every time they go through a growth spurt, right? Because the body has to re-coordinate and so forth. This, when you... Transition and you're going through quote unquote second puberty, you don't have that. Okay. The schema acquisition mode has been shut down unless you started, you know, transitioning while you're still more or less in puberty, right? Which means that for your voice, your body to adjust to all of these things, it has to fail a lot. Now, keep in mind, when you were a teenager, your voice and body failed a lot, but you don't really remember that because that was traumatic and you blocked it out and you don't like to think about that the time when you were 13 and your voice cracked every time you said something, right? So you just sort of, you know, put that, no, oh, that was a thing that happened back then and it didn't happen, no, 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 right? Um but it does have to, it does have to actually fail. You have to be willing to allow it to crack. You have to be willing to allow it to do weird things and make weird noises for it to adjust to this new instrument. And that is true for trans mask and trans them folk. Now it's a little bit more obvious for trans mask folk just as in the way that puberty the first time is more obvious for um mad people than it is for afab people, but afab people still go through vocal puberty and it still takes five or six years. And that's why oftentimes girls have breathy voice, even at like 17, 18, because the, the mutation is not fully completed. And we still have that, that gap at the back, the mutational mm-hmm. chink. Right. So, so it, we have to remember that this process process. process requires a lot of trial and error and a lot of failure because otherwise your body is sitting there going, well, something has changed, but I'm not sure what, so I guess I just do the same thing, but more question mark, question mark, question mark, right? And that's not really how it works, right? If you push more and more and more pressure, the larynx gets locked, right? Things get stuck. Then you start to have more problems, you get more tension and so forth, right? So the biggest things that we see uh, in all of this really are usually functional issues where the thought of allowing the voice to be more vulnerable to crack or whatever is very hard to do. So the singer ends up pushing and so forth to try to make the sound stable. Mm. Right. So several things that, well, that have to be addressed regardless. And this is true for trans feminine, trans mask is valving and pressurization, right? Um, The amount of air that you're going to need is going to shift period simply because the, the, composition of the muscles and, and uh, connective tissue has changed on the, on HRT, right? So that means, you know, that, that, the trans mass person is going to have to learn when to back down, how to reset the larynx, how to figure out what valving looks like in this voice, right? Whereas the transfem person is going to have to actually, okay, I don't need as much air flow as I might have needed before. I don't need as much subglottal pressure, right? And they're going to have to learn to readjust in other ways as well, right? So some of it also depends on just what the singer's tendencies were to begin with.
0: Yeah. If they
1: had, you know, pushing tendencies, before they started hrt that's not going to take that away it's just going to be amplified
0: you mentioned your book the chapter that you've written for this book when when is that accessible do you have a date
1: it's supposed to be at september october of this year um fingers crossed uh i don't want to i don't want to give out full things till till that's fully sure. committed, because I'm not the editor. Yeah. So, um, so, but that should be available by the end of the year. Um, the To Tea or Not To Tea is available, um, like I said, through Vasta, that's has some of that as well.
0: VIP are doing a, a, an event on identity, and you're going to be presenting, which is really cool. And you have a series that I, I've read your article, um, and you've hashtagged it as Peacock pedagogy, which I believe is centered around this idea of, of authenticity, not an idea, it's like that what we're striving for, right? Um, and it's outside of these conformist ideals that we might feel caged by. So a really huge question. But if you can, how do we start finding our authentic voice? What are the first stages that you would advise for us to make sure that we're expressing authentically? couple
1: of things. First off is consistently and frequently reminding yourself that you cannot die from embarrassment, right? If it was possible to die from embarrassment, I wouldn't have made it past 11. So I am here (laughs) living to tell you, you can make weird noises. You can do the things you can play around. You can do that. You aren't going to die from it. And that sounds like me being sarcastic, but I'm not really being sarcastic. We lizard brain back here. Lizard brain's job is to keep us alive. Okay. Now lizard brain isn't, is clear. Is, clever, but not discerning. Okay. When fancy monkey brain up here pushes the panic button, okay. Lizard brain and rightfully so treats everything with the same level of urgency, but lizard brain, because it does not do abstract this, this is abstract, right? When you push the panic button, it cannot tell the difference between an existential threat of having to sing in front of people and them might thinking you're weird or whatever. And a tiger about to bite your butt right? It's going to treat them in the same way with the same gravity, right? Mm. And the problem when that happens is that now we have two vocal mechanisms that are in antagonism to each other, the singing mechanism where things need to be free, where it needs to be able to move, et cetera. Mm. And the, oh shit, we're going to die mechanism, which is clamping, locking everything down so that if something hits you, you fall, you aren't sucker punch and winded, right? So you get stop and go happening at the same time. Right. So when we say you're not going to die from it, you need to be literally retraining lizard brain to understand and believe that these singing tasks and things that feel so scary and so big are not actually life-threatening. So that we don't have that trigger of the stop mechanism while we're trying to sing. That's mm-hmm. thing number one. Thing number two is is letting go of what I call sometimes false dignity right? Dignity is inherent. Dignity is to the human condition. Dignity, you don't have to be quote unquote dignified to have dignity, right? And a lot of times we avoid things that are authentic because we don't think of them as being dignified, right? And to me, that is a false dichotomy, right? That's really be it's used for as a tool of social control. Don't act out. Don't you dare do the thing. Don't you dare be weird. Don't you dare, because things might bad things might happen, capital B, T, etc. Bad things might happen, right? And so that fear of the bad things that might happen is leveraged against us societally to keep us from being more authentic, to keep us from questioning, right? So the allow yourself be privileged And joy of being silly, of making noise, of just trying to do the things. You know what would happen if I apply curiosity? Because you can't be in a state of threat and be curious. There's, you know, they say curiosity kills the cat for a reason. When you're in danger, you can't be curious. So when you are consciously curious, you are telegraphing to your lizard brain, right? That this is not a dangerous situation. So if you can let go of that sort of false dignity of I have to act in a dignified way to have dignity, and simply allow yourself to have curiosity and be silly and fun and play, you're going to get a lot further, a lot faster than any amount of, oh, I'm sitting at the piano and I am practicing very seriously, mm. right? But thirdly, I think the thing to remember is that if you get one life, that's it, right? Regardless of what your beliefs of the afterlife are, this go round you get one. Do you really want to spend it being someone else's voice? Mm, amen. <laughs> yes. Why would you not want to be you? I like the peacock because, you know, it's the most grand of the of the animals, and it just doesn't apologize. It is not quiet. It is not small. It is not it is not khaki drab. Right. It, the peacock is just well, yes, I'm fabulous. Thank you for noticing. I mean, it's you're welcome. Right. <laughs> That's and that's how we should be about who we are, not, and I don't mean that pridefully or to the, to the detriment of others, but why would you apologize for who you are?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Why would you make yourself smaller? Why would you be like, sorry, please don't hear me. You are a beautiful, gorgeous peacock with a beautiful, gorgeous voice because your voice is this artifact of everything you are. It's of your family, of your history, of your experiences, of your personality, of your moods, of your beliefs, of your love, of your heat. All of those things are what make your beautiful, wonderful, unique voice. So why the hell would you shut it up and lock it up in a little box and be like, you can only come out if you look like a I don't know a a swallow or something. Let it come out and be a pink, uh, you know, a a peacock.
0: I love it. I love it. (laughs) Oh my goodness, that's the best thing to end on. Dr. Felix, thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with me today. It's been so lovely to to connect with you. Where can people find out more about you and get in touch?
1: You can find me on the interwebs at Sing with Dr. Felix. It's Sing with Dr. Felix. So I'm on all of the things that that. at that my website is also singwithdrfelix.com
0: um i am there amazing and listeners just to let you know that we have a great webinar on teaching transgender voices with dr emerald leslie which can be found in the Masterclass library via the bass membership um, so thank you so much dr felix i really appreciate it
1: thank you so much for giving me yet another platform to uh, talk about the things that i have feelings about uh, i appreciate that thank you for including me
0: Looking to expand your vocal knowledge and add to your teacher toolbox? Then you're in the right place! BAST are here to guide you with our membership, a growing virtual library packed with educational videos spanning a whole host of voice teacher topics. It's just £1 for the first two weeks and £6 each month after that. Now that's what I call a bargain. To join, just head to our website www.basttraining.com